there was an MIT study done that everybody, even a homeless person, has at least an 8.5 ton footprint because of infrastructure alone. So you can't really get away even if you decided to go super groovy. There's still highways, there's still water that runs. And if you don't use it by some grace of your inventiveness, you're still going to have the issue of your ancestors having done it to bring us to where we are here. In my opinion, it's all about cleaning up the legacy of the footprint as well. And that's what I'm on. I'm advocating when somebody decides to go bigger with this whole thing is that they also donate to get rid of the legacy footprint that we were handed by our ancestors. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so that together we can create a better world together. Today, I want to share some news from the impact that we've had together over the course of the past several weeks. In September, our audience, all of you, got to know Tsipora Berman of Stan.Earth as we talked about the concept of a fossil fuel treaty. Well, on the heels of that, an artist and musician, Donna Grantis, discovered us through that content and even asked if she could play clips from the interview on stage in Toronto on October 21st, 2022 at the Canadian Climate Music Summit. Wow, what an honor. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. And that week, too, our audience got to know Todd Palia, the current executive director of Stand.Earth, who works with Sephora Berman directly. He shared how their work has helped conserve 65 million acres of trees. So if you're looking for a charity to support, one that is at the forefront of standing with Earth, I want to double down on my recommendation to check them out. Just go to stand.earth, just like you would a .com, but instead of .com at the end, stand.earth. Check them out. You can, of course, also go back to those interview episodes, give them a listen, and share them with your communities. I wanted to also share an incredible moment I had through this podcast. I've gone somewhat political from time to time. Okay, we can all go ahead and laugh at that. I think it's quite obvious that I'm somewhat left-leaning. I did get the chance, however, to share with you Daniel Tonkopi's story of everything that he's doing with Delfast e-bikes to both disrupt the world of electric bikes and stand with Ukraine at the very same time. I produced a few pieces of content that related, including a bonus episode or two. Well, I received words of praise from his Ukrainian team that I simply thought I had to share. So I'm going to quote her now. I wanted to thank you for the great podcast, including the transcription with Daniel. Honestly, it seems to be my favorite. Believe me, I've listened to so many of his appearances. And of course, thank you for the bonus coverage and your attention to what's happening here in the Ukraine. As part of a team based in Ukraine, I find it especially valuable and appreciate it a lot. Thank you. End quote. And that was from Irina Zaloha, the PR manager for Delfast, based in Kiev. While it's impossible to stay apprised of everything that's going on in the world, it's important that we work to stay informed. I will be connecting with another Ukrainian company soon, that is EOS Data Analytica. They are working at the intersection of satellite data from space and Earth's climate problems. 
We already had to move our podcast recording once due to bombings in Ukraine because they simply didn't have any Wi-Fi connection at the time. And so my hope is that we will record without issue the first week of November. I encourage everyone here to stay vigilant, stand up for what you believe, and stand up for Earth. So today we are going to dive more deeply into this very subject of living your values as we get to meet my friend, Beth Craig. Beth has been living a negative footprint life or should we call it a positive footprint life, for six years. She's made it her life's quest to answer one simple question. What if the whole world did this and was able to live that more positive footprint life? She came up with some methods to help others achieve that reality, and she has ultimately discovered that negative is a new positive. And she's here to share what she's learned with all of us today. So I want to welcome Beth Danger Craig to the show and also ask you all to forgive for a moment my audio on this recording, because as it would turn out, when we commenced the interview, my microphone, for some reason, defaulted to that of the camera. And so it may not be quite as crisp and clear as you're used to hearing from me, but the content is so valuable that I want to share it unadulterated. Now, welcome Beth to the show. Hello. It's so good to have you here. I know we've been talking about doing this since before August, because back in August, you were leading this initiative, which I hope you could share with us as an example of some of your work. And then we can dive a little deeper. Sure. So basically, Give Back Tuesday, I started thinking about what if we could feel the impact of giving back to the earth for a given period of time, just to get people warmed up to the idea of living a reversed footprint lifestyle. And I started this last August, I call it cool down August. And so basically where people commit to reversing their footprint only for the month of August, just to start warming themselves up to the idea. And I'm happy to say we had like pledges of about 119 tons for just a month of August. But that includes people who have started to already live a negative footprint lifestyle too. But then we had some new people join One woman decided to start living negative just because of that event. And then I'm starting a group for people who are going there now and it's building some steam. It's good. So what does that look like going negative? It looks like a lot of things. Okay. So I guess the reason going negative looks like for you, as far as the pocketbook goes, you have to find a charity that you believe in and then you figure out how much carbon your lifestyle causes to be emitted as best as you can. This is all a best as you can scenario, right? We all know that. And then you just donate more than what you set in motion because of your lifestyle. We all have a carbon footprint just because we're in the United States. There was an MIT study done that everybody, even a homeless person has at least an 8.5 ton footprint because of infrastructure alone. So you can't really get away even if you decided to go super groovy. There's still highways, there's still water that runs. And if you you don't use it by some grace of your inventiveness, you're still going to have the issue of your ancestors having done it to bring us to where we are here. So it's really, in my opinion, it's all about cleaning up the legacy of the footprint as well. And that's what I'm on. I'm advocating when somebody decides to go bigger with this whole thing is that they also donate to get rid of the legacy footprint that we were handed by our ancestors. That leaves a larger footprint than you or I might thought about. But there is somebody like Paul Hawken, who I interviewed on an earlier show. So he advocates for doing something like purchasing two to three times the carbon credits for your imprint, specifically when you take on something like air travel, because air travel is so very costly. One of the things I've also covered is that even if it's a savings to fly with a stopover, a layover, it's first of all, unpleasant. (laughs) 
And second of all, you actually leave a smaller carbon footprint when you fly direct. And so I encourage people to fly direct. Now there are all sorts of carbon calculators available. You can even go to flights.google.com and review flights by all sorts of different airline companies and find the one that actually has the lowest carbon footprint. And then make a donation to offset your carbon emissions by two or three times, just to ensure that it actually works. One of the things that I have taken issue with is that many of the systems that are out there essentially are providing what they think the carbon sink ability of that tree might be, as for instance, when it's fully grown. But of course, it takes a long time for a tree to reach maturity. And so it's not necessarily the best method to go forward. We recently got to feature a lovely gentleman, Hank Dearden, as he talked about his work planting trees. And for only about less than a quarter a tree, he's able to plant trees around the globe in ecosystems that really could use a support and ultimately make a pretty strong impact creating that forest planet, which happens to be his website too, forestplanet.org. So I encourage people to check out these charities, stand.earth, forestplanet.org. They can be great assets for something along these lines. But really, I think we need to also think about minimizing our footprints and our daily lives so that we don't have to necessarily spend an arm and a leg to try and offset them for the hope it will work. Because as you and I both know, forest fires take out forests that may have been planted to help sequester carbon. So there are other extraneous factors that can get in the way of actually realizing the dream we're working to create. 100%. I also use cook stoves as my choice of charity for Drawdown August. And that actually flipped over this one woman to live a carbon negative lifestyle because she could understand that issue. And she loved the fact that there was such a ripple effect to the planet where not only are you decreasing the amount of carbon equivalent gases that are going to go into the atmosphere, but also you're helping out people have cleaner cook gear, which people in developed countries have no idea how dirty it can be. And then so you're making the people who cook healthier, then you're also saving the forests that are nearby, you're also generating income for the villages who have the livestock that has the poop sequestered, a huge ripple effect for everyone. Actually, that's my favorite project right now, I pretty much buy all of my carbon offsets from cook stoves, because it's the most immediate. To your point about the trees, I think we need to plant trees for sure. But the metrics on those just aren't quite as strong for immediate help as the cook stoves. So tell me more about cook stoves. Is this essentially replacing gas stoves? Yeah, I thought you had a gentleman on here. I actually featured your podcast on my webpage for Cool Down August, who he was awesome. And he actually goes around the world and makes the cooks, installs the cook stoves or the, it's basically methane capture. So you've got a bunch of live, you've got I hate using the word livestock because they're animals. (laughs) But anyway, you have a bunch of animals who are pooping in a village, and then you also have humans who do the same thing. And so you gather all of that, you put it in a biodigester, and then it siphons off the methane, which is about 85 times more of a greenhouse gas at the time that it's created. It does have a half-life. Right now, we're up against a literal deadline, so the half-life isn't really of importance. We just need to take care of it as soon as we can. So methane's bad. So if you put methane into a pipe and put it into a cook stove and turn on a light to cook with it, you immediately turn it to carbon dioxide, which is basically natural gas that we have is methane in large part. And so when you light a switch fire to it, you turn it into carbon dioxide. And now you've just decreased the warming capacity of gas by like 84. 
I was just finding that episode, it was specifically Ben Jeffries and his company, ATEC Global, which is out of Australia and working primarily in the East and a lot of developing worlds to ensure that we have cleaner cooking. So yes, I just wasn't sure if it was a different company you were referring to. So that episode for those listening is called Climate Solutions, Clean Cooking and Efficient Energy Use with Ben Jeffries, CEO of ATEC Global. And honestly, I learned a lot in that show. I did not realize how much of an impact animal dung really makes. And so the fact that methane specifically cannot be drawn down. So if we're actually putting that to use to do something like creating energy in a biodigester that would otherwise not be clean energy, and perhaps it is producing some carbon, but so much less methane is entering the atmosphere that is actually a better option. So sometimes I think we need to take our dark green lenses off and look at the whole picture because in a case like that, while it might not sequester carbon in the same capacity or same way, it's reducing another negative gas that really is difficult to bring back to Earth. Yeah, I think you're getting into the issue of carbon equivalent gases, right? And that's something a little wonky. And I don't know how much people out there know about that, but that's how everything is measured. And so carbon dioxide that has a like a one factor of heating capacity for the planet, and then methane is 85 times as potent at the time it's released. And so if you then convert your methane to carbon dioxide, you're decreasing 84 times the amount of heating capacity in the moment. So everything that is fracked, everything that is farted, (laughs) everything, all the methane that's released, that's all got 85 times the capacity to heat as just carbon dioxide. So that's why you want to have it converted as fast as you can. Here, here. I'll drink to that. I know this is only a coffee. So as we think about the personal impact that each of us is working to make and your ultimate decision to turn that negative into a positive, figuring out a way to do so on your own, and then amplifying that effort for other people, how do we actually get there? How do you guide them? Let's just talk more about this. I want to peek behind the curtain. Okay. How I got started in this, I honestly never thought I'd be here talking to you about living a carbon negative life. And years ago, I decided that something was just not working for me health-wise. I just wasn't feeling good in my body. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get at it. I journaled for five months first thing in the morning, and I realized I was really concerned about the earth. And I didn't know what more I could be doing because I'm one of those people that can pretty much check all the boxes. I bicycle to work. I buy all my clothes used. I de-plasticified my wardrobe. I capture all my water at the sink. I'm pretty groovy. And I still was feeling like I was missing something. So I started to look into all the supply chains of what I bought. And I realized, holy smokes, there is no good story there. Some of them is good with marketing and people getting to realize their potential with advertising work and design of products. But when you start going back to like where the sources, the raw material come from, it's not very sunshiny. And so I realized that pretty much everything I owned had a debt associated with it, that the earth and people were subsidizing my life so that I could have lower costs. For example, my iPhone at the time cost $600, but there were estimates that it should have cost like twice as much if it was just made in the United States. That's not including paying all the miners and different parts getting rocked. And I just thought, oh my gosh, so at least I owe $1,200 just for my phone. Then what would my car cost? And how about all my clothing? And so I just went on and on and started doing some comparative analysis in the marketplace. Groovy organic fair trade jeans made at Patagonia versus cheap jeans I've bought at 
forever 21 at times in my life, right? And then paying that difference. And then it was, who do I pay this money to? So then I started learning how to vet charities and that's on my website. And so I vetted some charities. I decided at the time I wasn't feeling so fabulous with my life. And I had a pretty stressful job and I was just doing the paycheck to paycheck dance for passing pick-me-ups as I could. And I saw squeak like 10%. I can wiggle my income around a little bit and I'll pay 10% of my take-home pay after retirement and taxes. And then I'll give that to charities, which is hundreds of dollars a month. I got really good at vetting charities because I wanted to feel awesome about spending $100 a month that I would quote, never see. But I just pretty much checked the box next to my integrity living. Okay, I'm done. And that was it. That was just going to be a lifetime expense for me because I just knew it was the right thing to do. It's a tax write-off. So let's think about that. Well, to a certain point, if you get to $6,000 a year, I think is the threshold that you need to meet. I'm still not there. But anyway, so I gave away that money and then that was it. And then in a couple months, I started to wake up super giddy, flat out giddy, like I'd never felt before. Carefree, rejuvenated. I handled my work better. I was less stressed. I was a class action settlement administrator. So lots of details, court mandated deadlines, millions and millions of dollars on my desk. And it was all being handled like way with way less effort. And I was like, this is interesting. Does giving have anything to do with this? And sure enough, studies have been done with MRIs and everything. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. It was totally predictable that I would feel this way. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Still didn't think anything of it. Just kept giving and giving. And then a few months later, all of a sudden, I realized I'm not spending as much money overall. I started saving money. (laughs) So now I'm happier. Because you were thinking about the imprint you were leaving. And the same thing has happened for me. I'm not buying as much. And even when I go to the grocery store, I'm thinking about things like that comes in an external bag. So I'm just not going to buy that right now. Or I'll get at the farmer's market. And then I'm supporting local economies. I went back to using more cash because that's easier to use at something like a farmer's market. But I also had this faith now that I was supporting my local community in a way that I wasn't before. And if certainly felt better about the fact that my recycle bin wasn't getting as full of plastic trash like for the berries I might consume as a key example. Those don't come another way when you go to the grocery store. They're always in those plastic clamshells. And so really starting to think about my imprint in this way altered my purchasing patterns. I started thinking about the things that I bought for my children. I started going to more used clothes shops and buying in these little independent ones that are in my local neighborhood. One's called the Little People's Store, which is super cute and run by one local woman. A lot of their stuff comes from donation, but many people sell their used wares there that are really good repair, right? So then that clothing is getting a second life rather than being worn all of three times. When I learned the statistic that most clothes that end up at Goodwill have only been worn three, maybe four times, I found that shocking because nothing in my wardrobe has ever been treated that way. It's like I will wear something until it is falling apart. It goes from being the clothes I would wear for going out, maybe work, to something I wear around the house, to something I wear to the barn to go clean stalls or whatever, to washing cars or painting it to the point where it's rags. I've realized that a lot of people don't think this way. They don't live this way. They get their fashion with the season. But what we're seeing now is a fundamental change in even the fashion world for how people are reviewing and thinking about it. I went to San Rafael. I would call it generally woke community insofar as sustainability is concerned. And all of the higher end shops in the neighborhood 
are sustainable fashion, mostly made of cotton. Some are like basically recycled jeans from the 1980s that are finding their way back into retail shops that have essentially merchandised them alongside new styles in a way that gets people to think about these older used clothing or even some clothing that never actually got sold before and it was sitting in a warehouse that's now out and about again. So I I just think we need to open our minds a little bit and think about our imprints. And as we do, we'll save more money and be able to donate more. People think about investing. They might set aside two or $300 a month to put into a 401k and never consider something like a donation fund. Yeah. So I love this concept. Thank you. And here's something too, and I think you're tapping into it without... A lot of people who live like you do, like they get so much joy out of it. But for some reason in the media or when someone's going to be like onboarding to doing those kinds of lifestyle shifts, they think it's such a burden. And it's actually like a way more grounded, simple, easy, less frantic, less cluttered, joyful way of life. And it's hard to convince people. It's almost like telling like, you really should check out this view but you're going to have to go walk over there. You know what I mean? And they just don't want to do the walk and then you're going to miss out on the view. But if you go, it's pretty awesome. I have some of my favorite clothing I have bought at garage sales and it may not have been the most eco-friendly item in the world. Like I happened to pick up this beautiful kind of velour Bessie Johnson dress from probably the late 1990s. And which is really when I was coming of age. So I still love the style. It was in on a blanket displayed in somebody's front yard for $5. I get complimented on the dress and I brag about that moment because again, I'm working to normalize used because used can be great. And we don't need to think about if we want that, well, it might've been a little bit more faster fashion. It's certainly not velvet. It's not made from cotton or wool. It's probably got plenty of petrochemicals in it, but I'm going to treat it right. I'm going to wear it. I'm not going to just throw it in the wash and let all those microplastics go into the drains. I'm going to think about it mindfully and I'm going to care for it. And if we think about our items this way, and if we're proud of them, then we make a lesser footprint as it exists. And then it also costs less and then you can have more money to give, which is what I'm thinking. So I basically go into grad school now for sustainability. And I just wrote a paper on how giving is the fourth pillar of health. And I have been reviewing literature on good sleeping, eating and exercise. And giving is pretty fantastic and right up there. And I really think do all the other I've have done all the other three from my life. But now that I'm giving, I feel like I just have an extra little mojo magic that just keeps me revved up. So yeah, so then I saved them that I had. And then I researched about giving and giving does actually make you richer. There's studies on that as well. It's the mindset shift like you and I were talking about where you just end up spending less and liking your stuff more. And then you do spend less on medical costs because you're not going to have your health blown out as much because you're healthier because you're giving. And also you're going to be up for promotions more and people are going to like you more because you're you're seen as trustworthy. Humans are automatically wired to trust givers. And so they get more responsibility and more pay. So when I saw, you know, that I was getting happier, I was getting wealthier, like literally wealthier, I paid off all my credit cards and 
pump my bank account back up in a year. <laughs> it was awesome. I just got curious about what would the whole world look like if we started to do this. And that's why I'm here with you now. I did some calculations with a friend of mine. We figured out how much carbon has been emitted since 1850 to 2050, how many plastics are going to be emitted till 2050 from 1960. And then Roughly, what's the cost to get rid of poverty, basing it on the cost for extreme poverty? And then who is responsible for this? Or rather, who has the opportunity because giving is so good for you? And we decided, we talked a lot about it, and it basically came down to those who are in the middle class and above should really look at having this kind of lifestyle because we have the wiggle room in our spending. That's what makes us in the middle class discretionary income and above. And then if you look at all the adults across the planet who are in the middle class and above, it's roughly one in 10 people. So you take all of the aggregate bad, you divide it by all the people who can afford it and you do it over 30 years and you have roughly like maybe 150 bucks a month is all it would cost with the given prices the way that they are. It's just not that much to do incredible good in a very short period of time if you have mass adoption. So I guess my big goal is to just have people start to treat this like a real lifestyle and start to watch how their brain chemistry unfolds and is more positive, how their pocket, their bank accounts look better if they embrace it, and then just get more people doing it and start to create a movement so that we start to really reverse this because I think there's nothing more strong as a vote with your dollar in the marketplace. You can vote every few years. You can march when you're pissed off. You vote with your dollars every day. And if we started taking money away from tchotchkes and throwing it into not-for-profit sectors and creating jobs, nothing's going to speak louder, I think, than that kind of a market shift. So that's the kind of revolution I'm looking to start. Well, and it starts also in parenting. I will say I went this week with my mother-in-law and my husband and my two kids to Disney on Ice. And I'm not a big consumer of Disney, but it was an experience that she wanted to give them. So she bought the tickets. We get there and every single thing that you would buy as a souvenir is loaded with plastic. Lots of plastic, lots of batteries, lots of flashing lights, lots of unnecessary junk, really. And so I had to share with my kids, I'm happy to get you a pretzel. But other than that, we brought our water bottles, we're going to have fun. And that's it. And it was the disappointment on their faces is getting briefer with time. Of course, it's very hard to reason with an approaching five-year-old when he really wants that thing. But it gets easier with time. And now I got back from a recent business trip, one of my few of the last couple of years. I flew all the way from San Francisco to Philadelphia and back for Natural Products Expo East. And my kids are like, bring me back something. I want to. I did this to my parents as a young child too, right? And so while at the show, I found a company that makes bamboo cutlery and thought simply they could use some new stuff for their lunchbox, really. And these are bamboo and they came in just an organic cotton bag. I'm like, okay, it zips up. It does the job. I can put these in their lunches. I'm bringing them back something. I resisted the stuffed animal at the airport. And when I came home, it wasn't what I brought them. It was that I brought them something. And they were as excited by these silly little (laughs) utensils that are virtually, it's just a utilitarian tool that they needed, frankly, anyway. They were as excited about them as I was probably with the stuffed animal at seven. Taking them to bed. I love my new... Wow. (laughs) How old are your kids? Five and... They're almost five and almost eight. Wow. That's awesome. It's just... 
I think when you make these discussions commonplace and when they start to understand the cost of plastic, as a for example, my older son, he had a prior nanny that liked to watch the tablet with him periodically on YouTube as long as it was supervised. And she would show him the show called Ryan's World, which I abhorred because it was so consumerist based. And so they have their own toys. They did all sorts of toy unboxing. And then they have their own branded toys and their own branded game on tablets and everything else. And they have essentially become millionaires by putting their child's life on YouTube 24-7. I guess, great. It wouldn't be my path. I wouldn't choose that for my kids. It's not like you can take back what's out there in this capacity. They're wealthy people now. She took the Sandy, took them to Walmart. I don't even step into Walmart at one point. And of course they have Ryan's World Toys there. And so now my eight-year-old, well, now eight-year-old at the time he was about six, kept asking for the Ryan's World Toys. And when were we going to go to Walmart? And couldn't he do X, Y, and Z? Now I have not stepped foot into a Walmart store and I can't tell you how long. It was probably back when I was in college, which was over 20 years ago. So it's really interesting to see the imprint of one person, his nanny, who had him for a little while, taking him to one store and allowing him to watch one show and what that did for his mind and consumerism and asking for toys and how frequently he asked for toys and the types of toys he wanted and how important it was to him right? To then take a step back, and she hasn't been our nanny for more than a year now, this played into the decision. And he doesn't ask for those things anymore. And he's not as focused on the consumerism. And I really think this is something we have to think about from a media perspective, because it is the TV shows that our children watch, it's exposure on YouTube, it's exposure on social media. And if we are constantly attached to our devices and constantly getting these reinforced messages of these things that we should have to be the norm, and whatever that norm is, then we are going to continue to create generations of people that value consumerism over thriftiness. And if, on the other hand, we're more mindful and we educate our kids and we talk about things like the plastic problem and what's happening around the globe and supply chain and the environment and how hot it is this summer, <laughs> then suddenly they internalize these things and they start to think about the world a little bit differently. Yeah, it's one thing I'm, I have as a dream. I'd love to get to work with a family or to start working with kids that might be talking at the local high school soon. Where for charities is actually a pretty enriching experience. It definitely teaches you about different cultures and where your stuff does come from. Why is there a charity that's even needed in that area? Just like in the United States where we need charity work, it really opens you up to what's going on, maybe not in your neighborhood. And I've always thought that it would be such a beautiful experience to go on like a charity shopping journey with a child. Pick out something from your toys that you think you love. That's the whole thing about doing this work is it's not stopping from buying stuff that you truly love. It's just you purchased it. Now, what do you do to own it and really buy everything that went into making that thing to get to you? Because if corporations cut corners and you buy it for their costs, then you're cutting corners too. So to teach children what the full cost accounting is about stuff. And then where do they think they want to give their money to? If they had a few charities in the region, where would they think the money should go? And then why is that? And I just think you're teaching empathy. You're teaching supply chain. You're teaching it's a global community that brought you your Ryan toy. You know what I mean? Like it's not just. Yeah. Who made it? Where did it come from? What happened with pollution? Yeah. Just the whole thing. Everything we own is a story about the earth really earth and people 
And how can you break down that veneer so it's not just these beautiful, glossy advertisements that tell you about this product that just appears out of vapor? It's no, it's rich. It's huge. You know what goes on behind that advertising. So talk to me for a moment about how you have vetted the charities that you have on your website, because I know that this process isn't one that happens overnight. I believe we can, because <laughs> I have done quite a bit of charity vetting myself, even before I invite any charity to talk here. I do a fair amount of background work on them. Oh, well, let's swap notes. I want to know what your stuff is. Basically, I, I look them up on GuideStar or Charity Navigator. The paperwork that they get to, in order to do their processes are public paperwork. You have to file taxes as a not-for-profit, and that's public records. So you can look at anyone's taxes, and that's what these guys do. They go in, they look at the paperwork, and then they create these cute little visuals to show you how much went to admin, how much went to the cause, how much went to this and that. And then they rank them depending on how good they are with their money. You're not supposed to go past 25% for your admin costs is one metric. I go and I look on both of those. Sometimes charity, if it's bigger, will be on both. Sometimes if they're smaller, they just hit one. I don't quite know how they choose. I think it has to be like a certain dollar value of the chair, a certain net worth, if you will, of a charity how much money they generate. So I do that first to see if they even hit there. If they don't, I'm still good, but I just, that's one place. And then I put on the internet the name of the charity and then sucks or the name of the charity is a scam or whatever dirty laundry I want to find out. I put the name of the charity in that and then all the crap <laughs> floats to the top. And then I read all that. And what I've discovered is that just because a charity has some bad press doesn't necessarily make it bad because a lot of times when you have a charity that goes, okay, charities have money, they go into places that don't have money. That's how charities work, right? So when you take people who are privileged and in power and put them in another place, maybe in another country where people aren't, you might have issues of corruption and of predatory things that happen in villages, like in rescue situations and things like that. It's disgusting and gross, but it happens. And charities have gotten in trouble because of it. You have a few people who do horrible things and that charity name is just crap in the media. But the beautiful thing about that happening is now they have to clean up their act. So they're going to look at their infrastructure and find out where the weak links were. And now they're going to be a better charity because that happened to them. Whereas one that is in the same vertical, if you will, but didn't get caught may not have that infrastructure and may still have it going on, but it just hasn't come to the light yet. So just because you find something bad about a charity is necessarily a dead ringer for forget it. You should go a little deeper. There's more nuance. So there's that. And then I have friends of mine who are activists and anti the man in a lot of ways. And so I'll ask them too, because they tend to write, read a lot of alternative press and I bet what they find. And then if something gets through all of those, then I just call them with all of my pointed questions. Because by now, I'm like a layperson expert on their charity and their vertical of charity. And I know what good questions to ask. So I call them up and I see how I'm treated. They're not going to answer the phone right away. They're not for profit. I'm fine with waiting, but take that into consideration. How long did it take them to get back to me? Are they taking this call seriously or not? And then when I talk with them, I say, hey, this is what I do. I'm not going to mince words, but I just want to talk about some pretty like thorny issues, if you don't mind. And they say no, of course. And then we go there and I have a nice robust conversation if I can. And if they will meet me with all of my persnickety little dogged questions, then I say, fine, I'm going to give them money. 
So it's a four-step process, but it takes a little while. That's the ultimate vote of confidence in the end. I did just feature as, for example, forestplanet.org. I learned from my conversations with Hank Dearden that he essentially is working to amplify the other charities that are planting trees. And so he does a lot of that bedding work too. And many of the same points that you brought up, he is essentially saying as well, which I think is an indication that you're on the right track. That's awesome to hear. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say too, is I have worked with Charity Navigator and I have my father-in-law's charity that was listed there as well. So I happen to have some behind the scenes notes on what gets companies listed versus not. If they have not filed their paperwork on time, they get delisted, even if it might otherwise be like a five-star Charity Navigator brand. So if they were on and they disappear for a little bit, that doesn't necessarily mean anything nefarious has happened. It often just means it's like like they've filed for an extension to submit their paperwork. So that's one thing to know. Another thing I do because I'm such a greenie and because I absolutely hate junk mail is I have chosen to walk away from certain charities that send a lot of mail. And so the two that are on my blacklist, even though they might do some great work, are the Sierra Club and Nature Conservancy. Because no matter what, if I give them $5, I will be on their junk mail list for the next 15 years. And so I am not going to do that anymore. One I like to support, and this is like the added benefit. Think about things like this. Okay, the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's a great place to go to educate yourself on what's happening in our oceans. It's a great place to go with kids. If you become a member and you happen to be a local, then you get free passes and you can share them with your community and friends when they come into town. I personally like to go at least three or four times a year with my kids because every time it becomes an opportunity to talk about what's happening in our oceans. They ask questions, they learn something new. And what the Packard family has done with Embari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, as well as the Monterey Bay Aquarium is really fantastic. They are doing a lot to ensure the health of our oceans and to ensure that these open spaces get protected. So I love that you have membership. You can go to member events. You can show up with your children and have unique hours to view certain exhibits and things like that too. So it becomes part of your social reinforcement, which I think is also a very good thing. And then something else that I like to do is work with small charities. And often what you'll find is when you go to these big multinational companies that get big UN projects and things like that too, their administrative costs tend to be higher. And the smaller organizations tend to be more based in volunteer hours. They tend to have a deeper connection with the direct thing that they're working on. For example, Vitamin Angels, who works to bring vitamin A to communities around the globe, and specifically to reduce the instance of child vision loss or basically babies born without the ability to see. They have for a long time operated on only a 5% administration cost. And it wasn't until the last five or six years that they moved to 90%. And so that means that 10% 10 of the funds that they bring in, they use for admin. Everything else goes to their work. So if you care about infant mortality, infant blindness, this is a good company to partner with. Now, granted, that might not be in the, let's say, environmental space, but there's also a connection between the vitality of people around the globe and what they're willing to do to survive. And 
I think that this is the uncomfortable piece of the conversation because you talk about the social impact and sustainability that are the root of this show. The two can be really closely connected because the person that's just looking at putting food on the table and having to make hard choices, but they've got a forest in their backyard that is their family's, they might authorize its clear cut because they got to put food on the table next week. And then also you have the question of why are they in a spot where they have to worry about putting food on their table? And if you look at the manufacturing practices, I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, but we just all, I hate to say it, but it's like, it's still slavery time on the planet. Absolutely. And people in America have no idea. And I didn't know it as bad as it is until I started to really go there. And you get little whiffs of it in the news. Oh, Congo and the cobalt. Oh, but then if it goes away. But it's everywhere. It's nasty. And the reason why people are so scared making bad choices is because modern globalization of manufacturing practices has usually put them in the pickle to begin with. Not to mention the fact that that's why we have global warming right now. It's not about being in a blame game, I don't think, but it is about looking at how privileged I am in this culture, I actually have wiggle room in my spending. I'm in the top 10% of wealth on the planet because of that. So it's incumbent upon me to start giving back to my, who I consider really my brothers, sisters, and cousins across the planet and start helping them out. And then it helps me too win. And sadly, we also, we essentially have slavery here in the United States. It's just that it doesn't get talked about like that because it's our indentured servitude that comes from prison terms. Oh my gosh. I just posted on this on my Facebook feed. Yes. Yeah. So we have a prison system. (laughs) That's essentially it. It's a for-profit prison system. There are products that are made in our presence from your license plate to the clothing you is not just one simple thing. And manufacturers are paying. I'm sorry, it's like the courtroom furniture that they're arraigned in is made by prison labor. Liberal students in college are sitting in chairs made by slaves and they have no idea. Sorry, I'm totally passionate about that too. We don't talk about it. We think about incarceration as something that happens to people who deserve it. (sighs) You know what I'm saying? It's awful. People just are not unpacking the web there. And there really is who deserves. There's so much that went in life before them. Oh. Beth, I think we could go on and on talking about these subjects because there's so many intersections. But I want to ask you before we prepare to wrap, if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, something that you wanted to cover today and make sure that our audience is attuned to. Sure, actually. I should have known that was coming because I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> it's different being in the I don't ask seat, it every though. time, so sometimes. <laughs> I, you must only catch the ones that you do. but Most of the time, yes. People wonder how to get... We've answered the skepticism about the charities question, right? You can find charities with great value, with great heart, that do the good work. So just trust that. It's like buying a car. You just got to shop but it's out there and it's worth your time. And when you shop, you also get dopamine from being curious. So you're gonna feel better for shopping for a charity. So it's already giving to you before you even donate any money, even the bad ones, because you get dopamine. But I guess the question is, where do people get started? Because I think there's so much scarcity feeling and feelings of overwhelm and that we're all doing enough. And especially what I call the guilty greeners who are like, oh, I'm already like 
trying to bike as much as I can. I already do enough. I think what's so sad is everybody's so concerned about shrinking their footprint. That's a first step. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but it's this feeling, this ethos. I'm just awful. I need to make myself tiny. I'm not welcome on the planet. Look at all the harm I do. And what I'm trying to say is that's just lifestyle choice. If you decide to leave great, big, fat, juicy, awesome footprints in exchange for diminishing the bad ones and going really big on the good ones, it's a whole different life, way bigger, way more fun, way more involved, way more grounded. And I guess I'm advocating that. So just follow your cognitive. If you're filling up your gas tank, which is totally legit, this infrastructure is not made for people to not drive cars, which sucks. But as you're filling up your gas tank, if it's sticking on you and you don't feel good about it, listen to that and then see, is there a way I could give back to be in balance with the earth with just this one thing that annoys me that I always have to do? Just start there. And if you're like me, you might have basically made the decision to allow your husband who commutes for work to drop your kids off at school and pick them up in the evening because it's on his way out and on his way back, as opposed to making a unique trip each day without ever really telling him that's what you were doing. Really, I think about every trip that I make in my car and I make the simple effort of trying to have the errands happen in a circle typically do those on farmer's market stays because I'm not in a space where I can bike to all of these spaces and get everything I need for my home. So I will make the circuitous loop. And if I need to, I'll gas up that day. I have to tell you, I got through the entire month of October to date with one tank of gas. And I don't think I'm going to have to fill up before the 31st. Do you donate to draw that down? Yeah, I do. And so what I do is that my entire calculation that I make is based on my mileage and then if I fly. And so that's what I do. In my home, I'm working with solar energy that I installed. So most of that is taken care of. I do have a surplus that I still have to pay for. So again, I look at that and then we are... I haven't calculated our food and things along those lines. It's far more complicated, but perhaps I can use your metrics. Do you have a tool that you can provide that I can include with show notes to help people run a calculation? Sure. I basically just use the standard calculators to, to find where people are even at so that they have a starting place. I always round up for the bad and then double it and pay that for the good. If you just want to go super easy, guaranteed negative life, positive negative life living, just go big on the giving part. Because then you get to walk around saying inside your gut to yourself, the world is getting healthier and cleaner because I'm alive. I am no longer a burden on the earth. I actually can point to a piece of paper with like numbers on it and say, even if I'm jerk that day or I'm not in a good mood, the air is still getting cleaner because I'm alive. And that's a whole different feeling than what most people have walking around right now. And it feels really good to be a contributor on that level. Try and be kind and nice and all that stuff as all good humans like to do. But then to have that in my pocket too, it just, it's very empowering and also humbling because not everybody has the wherewithal to do this either. And so then how can one spread the tools around so that everybody else feels empowered to feel like the earth is getting cleaner because they're alive too. I love that. I will also mention, though I am not a lover of all things meta, I am not, <laughs> Facebook does have the ability, you can create 
donation campaigns that you share with your community. You can donate your birthday. You can donate a holiday. You can create an event. And they cover the 3% fees that a credit card would often charge those charities. So your dollars go to good use. And if you're giving $100, it's not $97 that's going to them. It's $100. So I think that's something that's important to think about because so many of those charities, $3 makes a difference. If I'm giving to just Forest Planet, as a for example, with Inc. over here, and he's getting $3 less, that could be, let's see, divided by 15 cents a tree, 300 divided by 15, using my old trusty solar calculator I've had forever, 20 trees planted, <laughs> $3. And I know that may not sound like much, but it is something. The American dollar is unique too. Our dollar goes a long way in other countries. So when you think it's just a latte for you, it could be like two malaria nets that protect people for three to four years. It's amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for joining me today, Beth. This has been really My pleasure. I appreciate it. It's really nice to be here. Wow, what a treat to have Beth here today so that we could dive deeply into what a difference each of us can make. I want to encourage everyone to check out Beth Craig's website and her important work by visiting integrityhero.org. And if you enjoyed today's episode and our conversation, please subscribe and write us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to listen. Heck, you could even be watching us on YouTube. This helps more people discover the show. You could even share this episode on your social feed or via email with your community. For complete transcripts, links to everything we discussed, and this video, I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. There you can explore all of our past episodes. We are well over 100 now. And I also encourage you to sign up for our newsletter so you can be among the first to hear of our new initiatives and collaborations. Subscribers receive our five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist as a welcome gift. While you're visiting your site, I would honestly love to also hear your voice. You can share feedback. You can leave me a voicemail on the site itself by clicking that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Don't worry. You can listen to it before you submit. And you can even choose to let me go ahead and share it on a future podcast. You can say on that, you're fine with me sharing it. I will always reach out before I commit to doing so. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, we can even regenerate Earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 